is the matter with Phil Sheridan? We'll put that question and others to Union Cavalry historian Eric Wittenberg when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Eric Wittenberg, historian of Union Cavalry operations in the East in particular. Eric, we've been talking about some of the famous Union Cavalry leaders, John Buford, George Custer. Uh, How come Alfred Pleasanton never gets mentioned? That's a good question, and I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Pleasanton had merits, but Pleasanton also had a lot of very serious character flaws. On one hand, as a guy who was a had an eye for talent, Pleasanton, probably more so than any other Union cavalry officer, made a major contribution to the war. At and, the same and, time, uh, I just want to step in and point out he, he was the the commander of all the Union cavalry at Gettysburg. He's not an obscure figure in terms of his responsibility. Correct. He's just not remembered. Correct. And Pleasanton was the one who arranged for George Custer, Wesley Merritt, and Elon Farnsworth to all be promoted to brigadier general a few days before the Battle of Gettysburg, and he also was the one arranged for Kilpatrick to be promoted to brigadier general. So, I mean, this is a guy who who really did have an eye for talent. At the same time, he was a lead-from-the-rear kind of a guy. He was known not to, not to have the stiffest backbone in combat. Uh, he was a conniver. He was a schemer. And he stabbed George Meade in the back. And it's interesting because Meade was his staunchest defender, but Pleasanton, who was a, a terrible self-promoter and, and had a real inability to tell the truth, was called upon to testify before the Committee on the Conduct of the War in, in February of 1864 and went and testified to the Committee on the Conduct of the War that after the repulse of Pickett's charge, he turned to Meade and said, General, I'll give you a half an hour to prove yourself a great commander and attack. Well, I doubt very much whether that ever happened. 
and Meade certainly denied that it ever happened. And, you know, Meade was a hot-headed guy, and he had been defending Pleasanton and, and had maintained Pleasanton in command up until that moment. And the minute Pleasanton stabbed him in the back, Meade withdrew his support, and very shortly thereafter, when Grant was com- appointed commander uh, and promoted lieutenant general, and suggested that perhaps Pleasanton wasn't the man for the job, Meade said, I agree. And Pleasanton was quite unceremoniously relieved of command and sent sent to, to Kansas and probably would have lived out the rest of the war in a real backwater type of an assignment if it hadn't been for Sterling Price's 1864 raid, in which, to give the devil his due, Pleasanton performed admirably and in some instances absolutely brilliantly. But his departure from the Army of the Potomac was under a very dark cloud, and as a consequence of that, he is uh, largely overlooked and largely forgotten. So, uh, to some extent, it's his own doing. Now, a Union cavalryman who was never forgotten uh, at the top of many lists is, of course, uh, Philip Sheridan. Uh, What's your view of Sheridan? Well, I think it's fairly well known out there with those who are familiar with my work that I'm not an admirer of Sheridan's, uh, particularly during his tenure in command of the, the Cavalry Corps of the Army of the Potomac. It's, uh, for one thing, the man was grossly insubordinate, and he got away with basically telling the Army commander, George Meade, off. And instead of being relieved of command when, when Meade went to complain to Grant about it because Sheridan had been Grant's hand-picked choice, Instead of backing Meade up, Grant instead gave Sheridan an independent command. And from that moment forward, which was May 7th of 1864, Sheridan was never able to serve effectively under George Gordon Meade again for the rest of the war. It meant that he was, for the most part, completely useless to the Army commander for the rest of the war. So... Sheridan Sheridan's not a team player. Not at all. To put it mildly. Not at all. Um, I mean, but war a guy who had a, a tendency to disobey orders, and, and what astounds me is that he was continually rewarded for that by giving increased levels of, of responsibility and command. But you might say nothing succeeds like success, and as unpleasant as it might be to serve as a colleague of Sheridan, uh, I'm sure Governor Warren would, would testify to that, uh, Sheridan keeps winning. Well, let's take a real good look at that, Jerry. Let's yeah. take a real good look at his tenure in, in command of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps, which began in April of 1864 and ended on the 8th of August. So you ba- And the first 30 days were spent in camp. So you're really talking about 90 days in the field. And, the, and those 90 days consist largely of the Overland Campaign and, and the opening phases of the Petersburg Campaign. And I will suggest to you that Sheridan's battlefield record during that period of time was something like 2-12-1. and one. Hmm. Now, in the National Football League, head coaches get fired for posting records like that. That's Instead, true. Sheridan gets promoted to a department commander in August of 1864. Why? I'm not sure. I've never been able to come up with a good answer to that question, other than you know Grant's own words suggested he had a great deal of confidence in Sheridan's abilities and he had, had unbounded faith in Sheridan's abilities and but as a commander of cavalry his record really wasn't very good at all and it's kind of astonishing to me that he's considered to be 
this tr- tremendous cavalry commander when he really wasn't. And maybe it's because of the last nine days of the war. Maybe it's because of the Appomattox campaign, where, again, to give the devil his due, Sheridan was relentless and he was brilliant and he ran down Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. But it also bears noting that he had no business being there because he'd been given direct orders from Grant at the end of March to do one of two things. He was to advance on Early's Army at Waynesboro. He was to destroy or disperse its scattered remnants, destroy the locks of the James River Canal, and then depending on weather conditions and road conditions, either return to Winchester or march to North Carolina and join Sherman's army. What does Sheridan do? Well, he marches to Waynesboro. He destroys and disperses what's left of Early's army. He destroys the James River Canal. And instead of returning to Winchester or instead of going to North Carolina, what does he do? He hangs a left and goes straight to Petersburg. He disobeyed a direct order from Grant. What's his reward? Grant makes him a wing commander. I don't get it. Hmm. Well, it it, uh, it does suggest Grant had an eye, perhaps, for uh, uh, for what Sheridan could accomplish, regardless of whether it uh, followed the the actual uh, instructions. Certainly, if you look at Sheridan's independent command, uh, his work in the valley, uh, his, his famous ride. Uh, at Winchester, you begin to, you can certainly see factors of command there that would make him worthy of notice. Correct. And, and as again, as a leader of men in the battlefield, he had an, was an electrifying presence. And Grant himself had said that he always admired that and was envious of it, that he didn't have that ability himself. And, and I think that gives us some insight into why Grant had such unbridled faith in, in, in Sheridan. Well, we all. Uh, certainly look up to people who can do things that perhaps we we wonder if we have in ourselves. Um, you've written a lot about Union Cavalry. What Are you continuing to work on this? Uh, are you looking at new fields of the Civil War to explore? Well, I've always got different projects in different phases. I have a book that's due out at the end of September on the March 10, 1865 Battle of Monroe's Crossroads, which was fought on the grounds of what is today Fort Bragg, as part of Sherman's Carolinas campaign, Wade Hampton versus Kilpatrick. Um, and then along with, with two co-authors, J.D. Petruzzi and Mike Nugent, we have a work that will be out later this year that is a uh, narrative history combined with a driving tour guide of, of the retreat from Gettysburg. And J.D. Petruzzi and I are just wrapping up a study of Stewart's ride in the Gettysburg campaign that both is tactical treatment but gets into the controversy and, and the historiography of the controversy surrounding it and finally concludes with our take on those events. And, and the title of the book should tell you where we come down. The title of the book is Plenty of Blame to Go Around. <laughs> well, I, I would guess 95% of our listeners would immediately want to know more about your views on Stewart and his ride. But since it's my show, I want to ask you about that campaign in eastern North Carolina uh, where I can look out the window here and not quite see the battlefield, perhaps, but it's in my neck of the woods. Sure it is. Um, I'm also working on Wise's Fork, by the way. Another eastern North Carolina battle. Uh, tell us a little bit about those campaigns. Well, I've gotten very interested in the Carolinas campaign because my wife and I have gotten very interested in ultimately relocating to coastal North Carolina. So I have started studying them over the years, and I made a visit to the Monroe's Crossroads Battlefield, which is nestled squarely among 
the drop zones at Fort Bragg, and it almost takes an act of Congress to get permission to get out there and realized that there was not much written. So I started reading about the, the Carolinas campaign, and I, I was fortunate enough to have a battlefield tour at Bentonville by Mark Bradley, and I was fortunate enough through some friends who arranged it to have Chris Fonville show me the, the Wilmington campaign, and I've become a pretty intense student of it all. And in, in the course of it, I've, I've edited a book manuscript for somebody uh, on the Battle of Averisboro, and I've made the decision to take a look at the Battle of Wise's Fork, which is something that, that has received scant historical attention. And I like the obscure, and it, it, things that are obscure that, that aren't often written about are the things that interest me the most. So I, I view things like that as being challenges, and I'm, I'm specifically tackle, going to tackle that challenge. Well, I think that is interesting. I, I, the more I learn about the Carolinas campaign, both the one at the end of the war and the ongoing fighting along the, the coast of, of North Carolina from 1861 on, the more it strikes me that it is perhaps obscure, but maybe undeservedly so. There is certainly potential, had there been more Union aggressiveness, to uh, to interdict the main Confederate communication line up and down the coast. And, and certainly more, the, the Weldon Railroad. Absolutely. And and had the uh, Confederates been more aggressive or more, more competent in their leadership, there might have been uh, the, those bridgeheads might have been, been knocked back into the sea, conceivably. Correct. So, I agree with you. There's certainly a lot there. You know, and then there, there's a lot of things about the Carolinas campaign that have not gotten the, the attention they deserve, like Wise's Fork, like Averisboro, which is a, a great example of a defense in depth that such as rarely seen in history. Well, that, uh, that is something we're going to look forward to reading as you produce that over time. Uh, we unfortunately at the, are at the end of our time today. Eric, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, Jerry, and uh, I'd be happy to come back again sometime. Well, I, I know we'll do that. And let me thank you, our listeners. Uh, for those of you who are listening live, let me uh, remind you that today, uh, that here in June 2005, we'll be taking a break from live shows for the rest of the summer. I'll be back in August uh, or early September. Uh, keep an eye out on our website, uh, uh, worldtalkradio.com. Listen to the archive shows there. Feel free to send me by email your suggestions for uh, new guests for the show you'd like to hear. And thank you all for your support and for listening. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>